2: We're spending the coming weeks and perhaps months not just talking about the coronavirus.
0: What? Did I hear you right, Jim? I mean, this is the only thing people have been talking about.
2: Right. But, you know, we're not really experts as much as we like to play experts on our podcast. We're not going to tell you a lot about social distancing or flattening the curve or how the virus works that you probably haven't already heard from other sources. But we are going to discuss some ideas and issues looking forward in relation to this pandemic.
0: So let's get started with one of them. Why we're so bad at predicting the future and how we can improve. Mark Earls.
1: Well, we screwed up on this like we screw up on so many predictions about the future the one thing we know about the future is always going to be uncertain so uh that's not terribly helpful we've heard predictions that this would happen for at least 10 years including bill gates uh, memorably five years ago so you know we've known that this is the kind of thing that's going to happen the truth is we didn't prepare for it
0: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? It would be very easy, Jim, to start this podcast with another rant.
2: (laughs) Well, it's worked before. But it is a good question. Why weren't we ready to see this pandemic coming? Not just the U.S., but all over the world. We've had HIV, H1N1, SARS, Ebola, and other diseases. And yet country after country really didn't have the apparatus in place to cope with an epidemic of this magnitude.
0: You know, global health security is a whole field of research and study and responding to a pandemic is part of it. Experts have been warning us for years that this could happen.
2: Today, we look at why human beings are so bad at preparing for the future and how we can improve our thinking. Both of us are practicing social
0: distancing at remote locations. We're joined on a somewhat uh, challenging audio line by an expert on marketing and social behavior who has studied the foibles of human nature for many years, and he makes some fascinating points about uh, why we're not better at predicting the future and also what we can do to improve.
2: Mark Earls is the author of Heard, How to Change Mass Behavior by Harnessing Our True Nature, and Copy, Copy, Copy. He joins us from London. Mark, welcome back to our podcast. Howdy. So, Mark,
0: my first question, how did we screw up on this coronavirus thing so badly, not just here in the U.S., but, but in many other countries overseas, including Britain, where you are right now?
1: Well, we screwed up on this like we screw up on so many predictions about the future. It's in the nature of how human minds work and how we we work together to think about the future. Unfortunately, we're stuck with a linear view of the past, the present, the future. Draw a line between the two and you get to a particular place. The one thing we know about the future is always going to be uncertain. So uh, that's not terribly helpful. We've heard predictions that this would happen for at least 10 years, um, including Bill Gates, uh, memorably, five years ago. And uh, the UK, like the US, has done practice exercises around this kind of thing. So, you know, we've known that this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. The truth is we didn't prepare for it.
2: Even when it starts and the implications are starting to become obvious, there's still this tendency to, to minimize, to say, "Okay, probably not that bad. Why is it that we have a hard time changing our thinking, even when the disaster has already started?
1: I think uh, we have a very selective perception, so we our minds and and our visual fields in particular, but our minds generally um, perceive what we expect to see, and it means that we don't see what we don't expect to see. you know we all would much prefer a stable world where these big events the black swans don't come, so we minimize them in our minds we Ignore them if we can, even though someone will come and tell you again and again and again. It's like smoking, right? We all have known in the past that smoking is going to be damaging to us. But many people continue to do it. And that's one of the problems that basic problems in how humans are that stops us seeing these big things coming over the hill.
2: The normalcy bias.
1: Yeah, the normalcy bias and selective perception of things. So people hear what they want to hear. They see what they want to see. And they, you know, we've all got... It's our vested interest in how things are because um, we know that. And we'd much rather stay with how things are because we don't have to think about stuff. Humans have the same relationship to thinking as cats have to swimming. We can do it if we really have to. But we'll tend to go for the easy option, the easy assumption, the easy things that are familiar to us or confirm the, the view of the world we already have.
2: Mark, you talk in your work about this idea that there isn't just one future, that the future is a set of branching possibilities. And that's hard for us to see because when we look at the past, it looks like a logical progression, but even the past could have turned out many different ways. You know, things always look really obvious when we know all the facts and we forget about all the little tiny differences that could have made that event not happen when that election could have gone the other way or that assassination might not have ever happened if but because it did happen it seems inevitable how does this kind of bias towards the sense of straight line thinking how does it inhibit our ability to to really deal rationally with understanding the past and the future
1: great points jim It's because we find it much easier to tell simple stories about the past, normally stories that flatter us, that we find it difficult to think about the future. The future is always going to be unknown until it's happened. We draw a simple line from the past through the present to the future and imagine that that's how easy it is to think about the future. I recommend we think about multiple futures and try and prepare ourselves for those potential things. So for example, you might say, look, it's going to be quite likely that a SARS virus kind of thing is going to come our way again. And it it could be less contagious, but it could be more contagious. This is the kind of thing that the World Health Organization have been saying for some time. If you just think about that as a, a probability rather than a certainty, you at least go, well, what would we have to do if that happened?
0: I want to ask you about Your friend, uh, who is a nuclear emergency response expert, who advises governments on how to prepare for a potential nuclear disaster. What has been his experience in terms of the reaction from those he's advised? Have they put some of his ideas on the back burner?
1: Yeah, I mean, they play these, these great games and exercises, like one of those military exercises. They use security and police and health services and the weather authorities, so you get all the data in from that, as well as the, the media. And they role-play what it would be like if, for example, there was a leak in a facility in France. His learning is always you need to rehearse this more. You need to do some very simple things. And of course, it falls on deaf ears, because those simple things are not very exciting. This kind of thing could well happen. Could well be that there's a a suitcase bomb in London. It's very unlikely, but it could happen. And the question to the authorities should always be, so what would we do if that happened? Authorities don't want to know that, because... They want some certainty. They don't like probabilities. And it's the same in the rest of human society and business and in our own private life.
0: It's, it's really hard for governments and multinational companies and other big organizations to change. Uh, is, is that part of the problem, changing the culture of a very large organization to take multiple futures into account?
1: it is very hard for for large organizations of any sort to think multiply about the future. And there are a couple of good reasons here, one of which is there's a vested interest in the operational side of the company doing the same thing it's always done. So, you know, all large organizations are, to a certain extent, blindsided by the future because they've only got the one that is like today. They only think about that one thing, just an extension of business as usual. So it's partly a psychological thing, And it's partly a cultural thing.
2: Speaking of how organizations focus on operations, so much emphasis in the last 20 or 30 years has gone to streamlining operations, lean supply chains, just-in-time management where inventory only arrives at the last possible second. And it all looks really good on a spreadsheet when everything's normal. The fact that you don't have a lot of excess stuff sitting in your warehouses is a great thing. But when one of these multiple future events, one of these black swans arrives, all of a sudden your warehouse is empty of masks or whatever it is that suddenly you realize you could have used a little surplus supply on. Are you advising your clients to think differently about supply chains and about their operations?
1: I am certainly advising my clients to think differently about supply chain operations. The financial incentives in business are around optimizing the current model. So they've got to recognize that that's what they're doing. And they've got to recognize the vulnerability that that creates to the business and to themselves. And that's hard. The trick is, as always, is to get them outside of their own concerns, outside of their own frame of reference, and to get them to think about, so if this context, if this landscape in which we operate is changed by something that somebody else does, what then? Rather than to think, yeah, well we have to you know have just three variants of what we've got. Sorry, there's a noise from the street outside <laughs> me. Yeah. So at least somebody's glad... yeah, I was gonna say I'm glad to know somebody's working. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no delivery guy's having a whale of a time.
0: Let's look at what we can do in our own lives. To be better at future planning, we've been talking a lot about organizations and big companies. How does this relate to us?
1: So I'm working on a book at the moment called Memories of the Future, which is based on the work of a Swedish neuroscientist who died some 20 or 30 years ago, David Ingvar. And his one idea is that we, some of us at least, seem to be much more open to and sensitive to new things. And he studied entrepreneurial people and creative people. And he realized that they found new things familiar, whereas the rest of us would be scratching our head in the familiar style. What on earth is this? And we could all learn to do this. You can say, so why is that box like that? What if it was the other way around? Why is this thing that I've got, why is the screen the same shape as a piece of paper? Why would that be useful? What if it was a bit different? What if it was instead the other way around? Instead of being portrait landscape, it would be a portrait screen. We can think about that in our own lives and saying, so what if it was slightly different? What if I painted the walls a different color? What if we moved the bed around? And so when you then have opportunity to do that, you then find it much easier to step into the new future because you're constantly looking at multiple alternatives.
0: Making this part of our daily discipline, uh, imagining things in different ways. Is, Is that it?
1: That's that's exactly it. Imagine things slightly different. You don't have to be an inventor. You don't have to be Steve Jobs. Just go, what if it was slightly different?
0: We are How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Mark Earls, who is in London. And we are remotely somewhere in the northeast United States. And uh, we're talking about the impact of this pandemic on how we think of the future. Mark, let's pivot to talking about the social impact of the pandemic. It's been a big shock for all of us, hasn't it, in terms of how we perceive our lives?
1: It's like one big deprivation experiment. So we deprive people of the social contact that that makes up their lives. And people miss each other, even just that sort of encounter, the nodding encounter of the guy on your way to the subway. Even the fact that you don't see people walking the streets because we're all in lockdown. Um, even that let's go for a drink, or well, we can't go for a drink because all the bars are closed. And people are looking at social media to understand what each other's thinking about. Um, and they are creating new kind of rituals and cultural practices in order to compensate for what they've got. So I've been invited to join a film club which is a bunch of people that I've worked with. And every evening there's a film that you can sign up to watch and, we, and then we have a little discussion about it afterwards. A great one I heard today was a dinner party that you have dinner with your friends, <laughs> let's order in Mexican and let's sit at the same time in our separate apartments and let's raise a glass, let's eat the tacos. Fantastic.
2: In some ways, doesn't it seem like People are taking advantage of this enforced separation to also step backwards, you know, and slow down and do some things a slightly more old fashioned way. Like, don't you find yourself on the phone more with family and friends? I called my sister last night. We never talk on the phone. We know we text and we email and we see each other, but we don't get on the phone for long conversations. Now we do. Do you think this might be something that endures a little bit?
1: I think there's two things there, Jim. The first thing is we have found ways to re-forge the connections that we can't have in real life, and we do it digitally. It's incredibly inventive of the species, and it shows how important those connections are. The other thing is that we're also remembering practices that we used to do together um, and revisiting them, whether it's playing along to a piece of music together or whether it's The sun is out in London and people seem to be decorating their gardens and tidying up their their flower boxes and so on.
0: And yet there's something else as well, isn't there, Mark? And that is we're so used to data playing a big part in our lives, to measuring things in this time of remarkable uncertainty. Are we taking a step back, as, as Jim mentioned, and also looking at what we value more, intangible things that can't be measured?
1: I think that's absolutely right. I think it's this deeply human stuff that we've perhaps forgotten and, and got used to living without. The value of talking to members of your family regularly. You know, I used to speak to my father once or twice a week. Now it's every other day. He's 87. And he lives in sheltered accommodation, and all of the social contact there has been closed down so he's pretty lonely um, but I do it every couple of days and it's it's I really value it and I know he does um, so it's it's an old-fashioned thing in, in some ways as you suggest old fashioned and and perhaps more human than we've got used to do.
0: what kind of impact do you think? this might have. I think, <laughs> I think it's way too early to know what's going to happen as a result of this, this astounding time that we're now in. But do you think there will be changes in human behaviour or are we likely in most of our lives simply to, to revert to the mean, to go back to where we were before?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. I think that there will be a number of different futures emerging one of which will be that we'll be doing this human contact via digital more and more. Equally, the simpler life is clearly going to be important for, for us as well. The big question though for me is about the world of work. Um, one of the interesting things for many professional couples is that you discover how your other half actually does their work. Um, if you normally worked in an office and you now have to do homework, it's uh it's an interesting thing not to be the most important person in the room for high-flying executives, not to be racing to get um, on a, on a, an airplane um, to fly halfway around the world. People are lost, I think, in those kind of kind of ways. And and to be honest, the simple world of work stuff, chitter chatter over the uh, the water cooler, the let's grab a coffee and talk this through, and just talk about the game last night, all that stuff is gone, and lots of people miss it very. Deeply, and it reminds us that you know one of the reasons for going to work is to socialise, rather than to do any work. And um, we've sort of forgotten that in our uh, ways that we lead and manage companies.
0: Mark Earls, thanks very much for for sharing your thoughts and ideas, and uh, all the best to you, and may you and your family stay well.
1: Likewise, great speaking to you.
0: Now, time for our recommendation. Jim, over to you.
2: Yeah, I don't know about you, Richard, but I'm sort of looking for the literary equivalent of comfort food right now. Uh, Novels or nonfiction that are interesting, but not necessarily too emotionally challenging, if that makes sense. Um, And so I've been reading a wonderful book by Simon Winchester, who is certainly one of the world's greatest travel writers, and it's simply called Pacific. And it kind of sums up a lot of work he's done and time he spent in that region over many decades. The subtitle is, it's almost as long as the book, Silicon Chips and Surfboards, Coral Reefs and Atom Bombs, Brutal Dictators, Fading Empires, and the Coming Collision of the World's Superpowers. And what's neat about it is he doesn't try to give a history of the Pacific. He basically looks at about uh, 20 vignettes of things that happened in the Pacific region since about 1950, the rise of Sony and the transistor radio being one, the popularization of surfing. But. It's a wonderful read, and, and you really learn a lot, which, I, which, is, which is what I like in a book like this. So Pacific by Simon Winchester is my recommendation for this, for this pandemic reading list. Coming up
0: next, our conversation about today's episode. We mentioned right at the top of the show that we're not experts, and I believe, Jim, that it's going to take at least a year, maybe longer, before we fully understand what's happened with this vast shock of the moment, and uh, who are the heroes, who are the villains. Uh, I think that right now, though, a little humility is in order, rather than assuming that our leaders and our experts are just wrong about everything.
2: You know, in that question I asked Mark about the fact that he his view that the future is a set of branching possibilities, but in a way so is the past. It only looks like it all makes sense because we understand the sequence of events that, that actually did happen, and we forget that many other things came very, very close to happening and might have happened, um, And when we look at the past that way, events seem really obvious. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying disasters. And always after a disaster, people always say, like, well, you know, how come the captain of the ship didn't slow down? Obviously, he was a jerk who just didn't care about the safety of his passengers. How come they didn't, you know, know that the oil well was about to blow up? But when you go back and you study them, you find out, for example, in the case of the Titanic, All ships traveled more or less at at top speed across the Atlantic in those days. It was a bad thing to do, but it wasn't wasn't that unusual. Be careful about assuming that if you were in this position, you would have done something very different. And especially, there's an awful lot of people now looking back and saying, well, why didn't they do this on this date? Why didn't they do that on that date? Why didn't they do X and Y? If those people are politicians – I only want to listen to them if they can say, and here's the speech I gave back in January when I said we should do this. Here's a tweet I I did where I said we should do this thing. If they weren't talking about the problem at the time, I don't want to hear their opinions now about why somebody else should have been more aware of the problem at the time.
0: Well, wait a minute. We just said that we should be more humble. You're not sounding very humble, Jim.
2: Am I saying that I'm one of the right people? I'm saying that none of us know. Humility lies in saying like, hmm, how can we look at the world differently to try to do a better job of not making decisions like that? That is humility.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the most important thing you said is I could have made that decision too. I mean, there's just so many different things in any moment of time that might happen That it's all too easy afterwards to go, why didn't we go down this path? I do think that we can learn lessons from others uh, and not assume that the U.S. approach is necessarily better or necessarily worse than in other countries. I mean, I think that one of the very interesting examples, and I'd like to do a future episode on this, is Taiwan, a democracy that planned very well and reacted very well to this crisis. What are some lessons we can learn there?
2: Yeah, the Taiwan example is a great one. They, um, they were much better prepared uh, to, con- to contain it and react really quickly. Yeah, this is a form of humility. There's these other countries. A few of them did a much better job. Most are kind of caught in the same trap we are. I think we'll all learn a lot. And I think at certain points, some finger pointing will be merited. But let's make sure we have all the information before... We just ascribe blame to our favorite bad guys.
0: It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. We're a production of Davies Content. We're a podcasting consultancy, and we make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Uh, Check us out at DaviesContent.com and see if we can help you. Thanks for listening.